All right, well, the clock on the wall tells us it's time to get started. So uh, we'll start off with a word of prayer. But I was just kind of reminded today, uh, I was listening to Francis Chan. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with him, but, oh, I love to hear Francis Chan. He reminds me of myself when I first got saved and then when I first went to Bible college. I mean, he's just so on fire for the Lord and just he's so practical and down to earth. Love Francis Chan. But he was kind of talking about prayer and how prayer oftentimes um, prayer oftentimes kind of gets routine, and we fail to remember who we're talking to. I mean, intellectually, we know we're talking to God, right? But we forget what kind of God we serve. We're talking about such a mighty God that when the Israelites heard his voice, they begged God not to speak to them anymore because they were so terrified of the voice of the Lord. And they're like, no, let Moses speak to us. You give the words to Moses and you let Moses speak to us. We, we don't think we could take hearing your voice anymore. And then the scriptures talk about how God is a consuming fire and things like that. And, you know, here in, here in this uh, modern day and age, sometimes we get a little flippant with our prayers. And we just, you know, kind of just shoot up a quick prayer to God and, uh, just kind of, sometimes we just need to take a step back and just kind of quieten our hearts and quieten our minds and just remind ourselves exactly who we're talking to. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you're such an awesome and amazing God. You are, you are the Almighty. And I was just reading that verse in, in, in the Old Testament where you were saying to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself as El Shaddai, as the Lord Almighty. Uh, but, but to Moses, you, you revealed uh, your personal name, yud heh vav -Heh. And Almighty just is, is a limited title. It's great, but it's a limited title. But yet when you get to yud heh vav -Heh, uh, what that word means is I am that I am and I will be who I will be. It's almost, it's like I'm the great I am. You are the great I am. Whatever our need is, it's almost as if we can just fill in the blank. Lord, I need blank. And you're right there providing that very thing because you are the great I am. You are our all in all. You meet and provide every one of our needs. You're omniscient. You're omnipotent. You're omnipresent. You're holy. You're just and your love. And it's such a privilege to be able to call you Father. It's such a privilege to be able to approach your throne of grace through the righteousness and blood of Yeshua. And, and the word says that uh, because of our adoption, we have the right to call you Abba, which in our language, it'd be the equivalent to Daddy. Such a, such a childlike, intimate term of endearment. And Lord, you said that we need to be childlike before we can enter the kingdom. And you said, suffer not the little children to come unto me, for they are the kingdom of God. And you blessed them. You, you weren't bothered by them. We need to love and be simple and have faith like, like children. Lord, we, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for everything you've done for us and everything that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for providing this beautiful church building, this nice warm building that shelters us from the rain and the snow that we can come together as a church family and open your word together and learn more about you. Because, Lord, these are your words. Everything you wanted us to know about you is right here in front of us. How you want us to live, how you want us to feel and act and operate is right here in front of us. 
It's our instruction manual for life. Lord, you didn't have to do any of those things. You could have just wound this world up like a clock and walked away and just let it run its course and let it wind down. But Lord, you are intimately involved in history. You are intimately involved in our lives. And prophecy just proves how intimately involved you are in every aspect of history and every aspect of our lives. And we just thank you and we just praise you for these things. Lord, your words are supernatural. We are a fallen, finite creature, and in and of ourselves, in our carnality, and in the fleshliness of our minds, we can't make heads or tails out of your word. But Father, for those of us who have asked the Lord into our heart, asked your Son into our heart, we have uh, the, the paraclete, the comforter, the one that comes alongside, the Holy Spirit. And because we have this Holy Spirit, we need no man teach us, but Lord, the Holy Spirit will lead and guide us into all truth. So, Father, we just ask for the Holy Spirit's assistance tonight as we open up your word. Help us to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. And we ask and pray and give thanks for these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we're starting out in chapter 4. So, uh, for our newcomers, that's a, it's a good place to begin because it's starting right at the start of a chapter. But before we go into uh, the chapter itself, I want to just read to you the memory verse for this chapter. At the end of every chapter, we have a quiz on the memory verse. So I tried to choose at least one or two verses from each chapter for us to memorize so we can get a well-rounded uh, memorization and grasp of the entire book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 4.4 is our memory verse for this chapter, and it says, Then he taught me and said to me, Let your words hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. I'll just I'll read that one more time. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. I love that connection there. Yeah, this is the New American Standard. Yeah. I like the connection, keep my commandments and live. Commandments, keeping the commandments equals life. In other words, it's our, it's our way of life. It's our instruction manual. I'll, I digress because we'll get into that verse soon enough. So let's just jump into chapter 4 and starting with verse 1. It reads, Hear, O sons, the instructions of your father. So we'll just take part A. We'll just stop right there. Hear, O sons, the instructions of a father. So the word here is the same word that's used in the Shema in Deuteronomy uh, 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That word Shema means not only to hear, because anybody can hear, but when you're hearing, it doesn't mean that you're listening. And when you're hearing, it doesn't mean that you're listening and obeying what you're listening to. So this, this word here incorporates hearing and obeying. It's, it's synonymous. So, it's, so you could actually break it down into two words. That one word could be two, kind of like French. Like us, English, we, have, we can say things really concise. Like I remember seeing a cinnamon toast crunch or something like that. On, on a box of cereal. Then it had the French underneath and it was like, it looked like it was 10 words long. I'm like, really? You couldn't have shortened it? <laughs> I mean, really? anyway, uh, so the word here, uh, hear and obey, O sons, the instructions of your father. So uh, yeah, it, it means to hear and, ob and obey. And um, the word instructions, we've already ran across this word before. This word instruction is the Hebrew word musar. 
And Musar is actually the title of um, a discipline in Judaism, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like ethics. It's like Jewish ethics. So there's a whole course called the Musar, and it's about Jewish ethics, and Musar implies discipline. It implies self-control. It implies a, a specific code of ethics. So it says, hear and obey my sons, the code of ethics, the discipline, uh, these, these life lessons that I'm trying to teach you, the instructions, the musar of your father. So basically what Solomon is saying to his sons is, pay me back, my sons, for all I have done for you and given you by listening and doing my instructions. Heeding, yeah, heeding is a great word. We don't use that word anymore. It's kind of, you know, arcane or old, but heed is a good word. Uh, heed kind of means, like I, when I hear the word heed, it, it reminds me to stop, to stop and to take notice and to pay attention. Yeah, and to, to take it into yourself. So here, O oh my sons, the instruction of your father, and, and the part B says, and give attention that you may gain understanding. Now, before we dig into the second half of this, uh, this verse, let me read to you 1 Corinthians 4.16 really quick. So 1 Corinthians 4.16 says, and this is the words of the Apostle Paul, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. That's a pretty bold statement for the Apostle Paul to make. To, hey, guys, pay attention. Imitate me. Do as I do. He must have been very confident in his walk with the Lord to be able to tell not just one congregation. The letter to the Corinthians was to a conglomerate, a group of congregations, not just one. He was telling the whole uh, congregation of believers in Corinth, no matter where they met, whether it was in a temple or in somebody's house or wherever, he was telling all of them to imitate him. So he must have been surely very confident in his walk with the Lord and his obedience of Scripture to say, you know, you want to know how to, to, to walk out the Scriptures correctly? Imitate me. Do as I do. And that's how we teach our, our young children. Is they, and, and well, whether we do it purposely or not, they imitate us. I mean, I, I remember like uh, my father, it's a little comical. Uh, my father, whenever he would work around the house and he had this unconscious tick that he would do when he was hammering a nail he always stuck his tongue out so he'd be hammering with, <clears throat> like so whenever he was working he'd stick his tongue out and I, and I would imitate that because I thought that's how you worked I thought that's the way that you looked when you worked you know is you'd stick your tongue out and uh, I remember one of the first times my dad took me to the barber shop uh, I got set down in the chair and I was so small they had to put that little booster seat there right and uh, so the barber put the little apron around me and stuff, getting ready. He says, now, son, what, what kind of hair, haircut do you want? I said, I want a black haircut. And I wanted a black haircut because my dad had black hair, and he had that Superman haircut where it was parted on the side and kind of swooped in that little curl in the front. That's kind of the way my dad's hair was. I wanted to be just like my dad. So I tried to imitate him in every way I possibly could. And so that's kind of the, the, the connotation here. The Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthians to imitate him, and uh, uh, Solomon is encouraging his sons to imitate him, 
uh, by obeying his instructions, by paying attention to his discipline, his self-control, his code of ethics. And also in one of the Apostle Paul's letters in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The exact point I was trying to make. God is our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And just as earthly children, we imitate our, tend to imitate our parents, whether, whether they know it or not or whether they want us to or not, we are to imitate God because God is our Father and we are to imitate Him just like a little child does because we are His children. And how do we imitate God? How do we know? I mean, we can't see God. We can't feel God. We can't smell God. We can't taste God. We can't hear God audibly. How do we know how to imitate him? It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Did somebody, was somebody going to say something? Ah, by his word. Right. His word reveals who he is. It reveals his character. It reveals what God is like. So we know that through reading, now a lot of people will take the Old Testament out of context, and they will say, God is a wrathful God. He's a vengeful God. Well, sometimes he did take vengeance, but it was only because it was deserving. He says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So it's almost as, a, you know, sometimes you have a rain gauge, and you can tell how much rain that you get by looking at that rain gauge. Sometimes that rain gauge overflows. And God has like a, a wrath gauge, if you will. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he can only take so much and it gets filled up to the top and it starts to overflow and he has to, he has to act or he wouldn't be a holy God. He wouldn't be a just God. And I can't remember exactly what people group he was talking about, but he said to one of the prophets that, uh, uh, you know, that they're, that they're, the time for their vengeance hasn't been filled up yet. In other words, this people's on their way to, way to be judged, but they haven't crossed the line yet. So I'm still extending mercy to them. They still have a ways to go. I mean, God waited 120 years before he flooded the earth. So 120 years uh, before Noah's flood. So people had plenty of time to repent. Plenty of time. So, you know, people will say, well, God is an angry God. He's a wrathful God. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, you learn about God's character. He's merciful. He's compassionate. These, these words, these very words he said when he was on the mountain with God, when Moses was on the mountain with God, he says, God, let me see your face. He says, no, 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 you can't see my face. No man shall see God and live, but you'll be able to see my backside. And when the Lord passed him, he said, he's merciful. He's compassionate. We know that God is holy. All of the attributes of God hang on his holiness, his love, his favor, his grace, his compassion, his mercy, his justice. So these are the attributes and characteristics of God that we are to imitate. And we're to imitate them because it says that he created uh, man in his own image. And in the image of God created he them, male and female. So I think that's interesting. We have, we have two genders, two sexes. I know that's not popular to say, but that's the truth. That's the way God created us. So we know that God is a spirit. God has no gender, even though we call him by the masculine pronouns. God is a spirit. But for God to create man, mankind, in other words, in his own image, male and female, God has a masculine side, so to speak, and God has a feminine side, so to speak. And it's interesting that in the Godhead, the Hebrew language and the Greek language kind of plays this out. 
where God is seen as a father, and whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is actually in the feminine gender in the language of Hebrew and Greek. And the Holy Spirit kind of takes a feminine role uh, in God's character because what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the comforter. What were you going to say? Yeah, the comforter. That's a very, you know, a father, a father can be comforting if he has to be. But usually the father's like, come on, suck it up. Just rub some dirt in it. You'll be all right. Walk it off. You know, and that's how the father shows love is by telling the kid, just pick yourself back up. We all fall. Get over it. It's not that he's being cruel or mean or incompassionate. That's just the way God has made us fathers. But a mother, on the other hand, would be very comforting, very nurturing. Oh, you know, let me clean it off and let me kiss that boo-boo and make it better. Let me put a Band-Aid on it and here's some cookie and milk. You know, I mean, the mother's the comforter. And so it's kind of like the Holy Spirit is that feminine aspect or that feminine side of God, so to speak. And it kind of plays that out. So for him to create male and female... You know, God's masculine qualities kind of went into the man and the feminine qualities went into the woman. What does he say? The two will come together and shall be one flesh. We are incomplete without our our opposite, right? So we come together and we become one flesh because we are we are to be we are made in God's image and we are to be God's image bearers. So we bear God's image by our moral character, our moral fiber, by following the word, by imitating God, and also by coming together as man and wife and being one soul, one flesh. Being a whole, you know, and it's interesting. When my, my father passed away, it's been, actually it was just a few days ago, was the anniversary of his passing, and it's been 11 years. And I tell you, my mom has never been the same since. And I'm sure you widows could probably attest to that. She says, I, tr- I truly lost my better half. I feel like half a person now. I feel incomplete. You move on and carry on with life as best you can, but you don't feel like a whole person because, you know, you're, yeah, something's missing. So, yeah, you, you widows, you get it. And I see my mom go through, yeah. And I see my mom go through that. And that kind of just proves and solidifies the word of God for me even more. You know, that the, what the Bible says is true. The two shall become one flesh. And so we are God's image bearers. We imitate him. Now, we already established that we imitate him by obeying his word. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the form of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He was that living example. He walked out the word of God physically, literally, in front of the world, in front of the disciples, and it's recorded for us in the apostolic scriptures of the Brit Kadesha, the Renewed Covenant, the New Testament. And so when we, when we look at Jesus and his life and his teachings, we can imitate him. And by imitating him, we are imitating the Father, because he even told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I can't do anything without the Father. Whatever I do, the Father told me to do. I only do what I see my Father doing. He said that over and over. So it's really interesting how all this kind of just comes together. So back to the passage at hand. Hear, O sons, the instructions of your father and give attention. Give attention that you may gain understanding. The word give, uh, actually give attention is the same Hebrew word. It's, 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 It's said twice in the Hebrew. So, you know, you could translate it, give, give, that you may gain. 
or attention, attention that you may gain. But the translators say here, give attention. Because the word is said twice in the Hebrew, it is emphasized. So kind of reminds me of Charles Stanley's preaching. Whenever Charles Stanley wants you to wants you to really get something that he's coming across, he goes, listen now, listen. If you notice that, he'll stop and he'll just make that verbal, verbal, hey now, stop, listen now, listen. And you do, you perk up and you're like, oh wait, okay. Because he has such a sing-songy voice, sometimes, you know, that lilty voice of Charles Stanley, you kind of, your, your mind just kind of goes, you know, and you just enjoy listening to him. But when he's trying to drive a poem home, he brings you back and say, hey, listen, that's what the Hebrew is doing here. Give, give. So give, and this word give means uh, heed or make note of, take note of, mark my words, stop, pay attention. So it says, give attention that you may gain. Now, it's interesting, the word gain. If I was a translator, I don't know if I would translate this Hebrew word as gain. The Hebrew word is yada. And we know that yada, huh? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, they, they, they say it on Seinfeld all the time, and it's a Hebrew word. It's a Jewish word. And the word yada means to know. But it also means sexual intercourse. Because it's the same word that's used where it says Adam knew Eve. We all know what that means. So it's a term of intimacy. It's just not knowing something on the surface. It's knowing something intimately inside and out. And that's what this word gain is. That you may gain. That you may know intimately. That you may know intimately understanding. That's interesting too. That you may intimately know understanding. Because wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are over and over and over in the book of Proverbs, is personified almost as a female person. Especially wisdom is, is, is called a she many times. So here it's almost implied that understanding is a she as well. And we're to know understanding intimately. We're to be intimate with understanding. Just as a man is intimate with a woman, we are to be intimate with wisdom and with understanding and with knowledge. We're just not to know it on the surface. We're just not to know how it operates. We need to know inside and out, the, the, the nuts and bolts and the guts and the hows and the whys of it all. Now, the word uh, uh, understanding here is the Hebrew word bina, and it means insight. And it's basically logically predict outcomes by experiential knowledge. That's kind of what understanding implies here. So moving on to verse 2. For I give you sound teaching. For I give you sound teaching. And I know I've said this over and over, but just to remind you, the book of Proverbs is almost like an instruction manual for kings and judges and rulers and ambassadors. Because Solomon is addressing his sons, whether literally or figuratively, whether his sons that will be future kings and rulers and ambassadors or other um, people that are under his rulership that, that play those same parts and roles. People that are in his uh, uh, cabinet, if you will. Hear, O my sons, the instructions of your father and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. The word give here means to deliver or to grant or to yield up. So when we hear teachings from a teacher, whether it be a pastor or a rabbi or a professor or a doctor or what have you, we need to see that what they're giving us is, is like a gift. They're yielding up their knowledge for you. 
They don't have to teach. They don't have to tell you anything. They can just hoard that knowledge and that wisdom and keep it all to themselves, and nobody would be none the wiser. But when a teacher is teaching, a teacher is giving a part of himself to you. He's pouring out a part of himself to you. And I'm sure that those that were in the teaching profession can attest to that. You, you can't help but give a part of yourself when you're teaching. And every teacher has a different style and a different flair and a different way and a different personality of teaching. There's some teachers I remember growing up that I liked more than others, that I was attracted to more than others, that I gravitated to more than others. And some that took me under their wing and others didn't. But nonetheless, a teacher or an instructor or a father, anybody that's dispensing wisdom and knowledge is giving a gift. And that word give means to deliver, to grant, or to yield up. And I think that's a perfect description. For I yield up to you. I, I, I give to you. Um, I grant to you. I deliver unto you sound teaching. And the word sound means sturdy. It means healthy. It means good. It's the same word that God used when he created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of the whole thing, he called it all very good. And does not the scripture say that, you know, um, in Matthew 5, that until heaven and earth pass away, my word will not pass away. So just as sturdy as heaven and earth is, that it can't be shaken, it can't be moved, it can't, you know, just as it's here, we have terra firma, we could look outside and still see the sky. That God's word is just as sturdy and reliable and dependable as the earth and the sky. It's good. It's tov. It's sound. It's sturdy. It's healthy. It's dependable. It's true. So I give you true. I give you sturdy, sound, dependable teachings. And this word teaching um, is lechak. And it's, it's a word that we haven't encountered yet in regards to teaching. Because uh, there's other words that we've, we've dealt with. And this is kind of a new one. It's uh, lechak. It means receiving and grasping what you learn or are instructed and it's also been translated in other places as the word doctrine doctrine sound doctrine boy that's what we need in our it says in king james sound doctrine hey very good yeah for i give you sound teaching or i give you sound doctrine yeah yeah, so it's dependable, it's sturdy, and doctrine is something to be received and grasped onto, almost like a life preserver. You know, it's something that's going to keep you afloat, it's something that's going to keep you safe, it's something that's going to keep you alive. These teachings, they're sound, they're sturdy, they're dependable, and we need to grasp them. We need to lechak, grasp these teachings and doctrines and these instructions. For I give you sound teaching, do not abandon my instructions now this word abandon is azab and it means to lose to relinquish to release or to give up it also means to forsake to set free uh, to leave behind or to omit so this word abandon is not something that you do on accident when you abandon something it's a it's a conscious purposeful meaningful action you know, you, sometimes, you, sadly, you hear of parents abandoning their children. They just don't say, oh, goodness, where did my children go? No, they, they, they make a, a, a conscious decision to leave them behind for whatever reason. They abandon them. And so Solomon is saying, do not abandon, do not forsake, do not give up, do not relinquish. My, don't purposely walk away from and leave and omit 
my teachings, my instructions. So the word instruction here is, is the word that's used for the Mosaic law, and it's Torah or Torah. And it means law and it means instructions. I like the word instruction better because nowadays law kind of seems to have a negative connotation. So it says, do not abandon my instructions. And maybe this Solomon could be alluding to the Mosaic law itself because one of the first things a king did when they sat on the throne of Israel, according to Deuteronomy, I think 17, if I'm not mistaken, is that they wrote out the five books of Moses by hand for themselves. So the, and they were to read it every day so that they would know how to rule Israel correctly. So when you write something and you pin it and you copy it, you take ownership of it. It becomes yours. It's kind of like on American Idol. Like uh, I, I know that some of the judges, when somebody sings, uh, they'll, they'll say, well, that was a great song that you sung by such and such or so and so, and you made it your own. In other words, they put their own spin, their own flair, their own accent, their own way of doing it to, in that song and almost made a new song out of it. They took ownership of that song, even though it was written by somebody else and sung by somebody else. They took ownership of it. And so when Solomon wrote the Torah for himself, copied the five books of Moses, he took ownership of it. And maybe he's alluding to that. Do not abandon my instructions. You know, my instructions are God's instructions, and I want God's instructions to be your instructions as well. So I have written here, one and only unique son, a parent lavishes all their attention um, and nurture and care upon him and pours all they have into them. They treasure him and esteem him like a rare jewel and a priceless manuscript um, or an endangered animal. And that's what I have for verse 3. That's to head up verse 3. It says, When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. So we know, we know who Solomon's mother was, Bathsheba, right? But it wasn't Bathsheba's first son because her first son died, at least the first son that she had by David. And Solomon was very unique. Now, the way that David and Bathsheba got together was not kosher. Um, basically, David, his responsibility was to lead his men into battle. He decided to stay home, and he saw a woman bathing. And according to the Hebrew and according to the narrative of the scripture, she was taking a mikvah. She wasn't taking a bath, like getting herself clean. She was taking a ritual bath called a mikvah after her monthly period, after her monthly cycle. And David saw her doing this and lusted after her and took her and tried to cover up the pregnancy by putting Uriah on the front line so he would be killed. And, of course, that's what happened. I mean, it's kind of like Charles Manson. He never, he never physically murdered one person. He never stabbed one person. He never strangled one person. But he brainwashed and led other people to do his dirty work for him. So he did kill people, but he didn't physically have his hand in it, right? And that's kind of like the, what David did. Even though he physically didn't kill Uriah, he made it possible for Uriah to die, and that was his intention. And so the first son was, was, was conceived out of sin, out of disobedience. And that son had to pay, you know, die. That child died. But then uh, um, Psalm 51, is, wait, no, 90, 51, Psalm 51, 
David pours out his heart in repentance to God, saying, I messed up, I screwed up, I sinned royally, I shouldn't have done this thing. God, forgive me, my hands are bloody, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, forgive me. That was his prayer after he repented for murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba. So now Bathsheba's a widow. So he takes Bathsheba as a wife because he already defiled her. And this second son, Solomon. Solomon comes from the root word shalom, which means peace. So David made his peace with God, Solomon. And as a result, God chose Solomon to be the next king and to carry on the messianic seed. Jesus Christ would been, uh, was born through Solomon's line. Such a beautiful uh, picture and narrative of redemption. You know, just because we mess up and we sin doesn't mean it's all over. In our day and age, you know, you have a pastor that falls and commits adultery. His, his, his ministry's over. But God didn't do that with David. He committed, he committed adultery. That was bad enough. But he murdered somebody. And God forgave him and he moved on. And he was restored. And that's, that's, I think that is what we miss sometimes in Christianity is when someone sins, you know, yeah, it's a horrible thing. We wag our finger and say, shame, shame, shame. But we treat them like they're always going to be a sinner. Well, guess what? You're a sinner too. You're always going to be a sinner. The, the, the goal is not to crush somebody to where we punish them and obliterate them and just make them feel horrible. The goal is ultimately restoration. We want to see that repentance and that remorse for their sin. And when that remorse and that repentance comes out, we can start them on that road to redemption, to where we can restore them and and put them back in the place where they fell from. Uh, So it says, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. So um, he goes on to verse uh, four, continuing that thought. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words and keep my commandments and live. So Solomon is referring to his father, David, and how David kind of chose Solomon and looked to Solomon as, you know, as a favorite son, sort of like Jacob did with Joseph. And why would David, you know, lavish so much favor on Solomon? Because Solomon represented his peace with God, represented his repentance and his restoration. And that's why he loved and cared for Solomon so much. And after all, it was Solomon that God lavished the gift of wisdom on. He was the wisest man besides Jesus who walked the earth. So when I was a son of my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. So he was babied. He was highly favored. He was just like, you know, just as Joseph was the the only son at that time of Rachel, and he was Jacob's favorite, same with Solomon. He was kind of like the Joseph, if you will, for David. The, uh, The only son in the sight of my mother. Then he taught me and said to me. So Solomon was, was treated special. He was, he was protected. He was guarded. He was treated like a precious treasure, a precious jewel, like an endangered animal almost, as I mentioned earlier. And all the nurturing and all the love and instruction was lavished upon Solomon because David ultimately knew he was going to take the throne. It wasn't going to be his other sons. Then he taught me and said, so he's referring to David. David taught me. My father taught me and said to me. So the word taught is yara, and it means to cast or to pour as a foundation. Wow, what a picture of teaching. That's a really awesome word for teach. 
Then he taught me. He poured into me. He laid a foundation inside of me. It also means uh, to shoot an arrow at a target. In other words, to hit the target, to hit the bullseye, to hit the mark. It also means to to establish, to erect, to build up, to edify, to fortify. Um, It's also been used in other contexts of Scripture to water or to irrigate. And what does water and irrigation do? It causes something to grow and to become stronger. So this word teach here means to solidify, to lay a foundation, um, you know, to cause somebody to be built up, to be strong, to be fortified, to be edified, to grow. Then he taught me and he said, now this word said, so what? It's the word said. It's an English word, a common word, said, said, said. But it's special here in Hebrew. This particular Hebrew word translated as said means it's a declarative statement. It's like a command or an order. It almost kind of makes me think of last words. Last words are important. When somebody's dying and they give their last words, it's usually their last wish or their last command, something that they want. Jesus had some famous last words. It's called the Great Commission. Go ye therefore in all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. And David had some pretty important last words to give to Solomon before he died because David had some unfinished business. So this word said in the Hebrew is a declarative statement. It's like a command or an order. So it says, he taught me, he poured a foundation into me, and he commanded me, he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. This, this word hold uh, means to retain. Now, I remember when I was in school taking tests and exams, tests always made me nervous. I always, I always had that fear that I would sit down and, you know, I study, 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 and I knew everything inside and out. But when I sat down, I was afraid my mind was going to go blank. So every time I would take a test, and even when I pray for Ariana or pray for other students that are taking tests, I say, Lord, help them to, re- to retain and to recall everything that they've studied. Because retention is very important. Sometimes, sometimes I don't like the, ideas, uh, the idea of tests. Because you know what? Sometimes you can study for a test and study so hard that you take the test, but you come back the next day or the next week and take that same test, you'll probably fail it. Because the only reason that you studied is just for that test. You retained it only for that moment. So this, this retention of knowledge is more important than just a, 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 an, ex, an exam or a pop quiz. Let your heart hold fast. Let it retain my words. Um, the, the, the word for words means subject matter. It means a thing. Um, retain this thing, retain my words, retain this thing that I'm going to tell you. Keep, and this word keep means to guard. To guard, keep, guard my commandments. Now this word commandments is the, is the Hebrew word mitzvah or mitzvot. Commandments, plural, is mitzvot. Commandment, singular, is mitzvah. Uh, but a lot of times Jewish people will use this word uh, to mean good deeds. Because we see every commandment as a good deed, something good that we can do. So the word mitzvah means ordinance, uh, terms of contract. You know, so uh, retain, guard, keep my ordinances, my commandments, 
this contractual way of living, this covenantial way of living with God. And live. And live. The word live, uh, it, 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 it brings the connotation of not just existing, but thriving and enjoying and um, being full, being complete. So the commandments are linked to life. And if we look at Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, that's exactly what the word of God is. It's, li- it's a matter of life and death. And remember, the only scriptures that were here at this time was the five books of Moses. That's the only scriptures that Solomon's referring to. And in Deuteronomy 26 or 27 and 28, you have uh, the blessings for keeping the commandments and curses for disobeying the commandments. So blessings, keeping the commandments, blessings always lead to life. Disobeying the commandments um, always lead to death. For the wages or the price of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Messiah Yeshua our Lord. The wages of sin is death. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Disobeying God's law, the Torah, is sin. Sin is disobedience to the law, disobedience to the Torah. That's exactly what Solomon's talking about here. That's what he's saying that David was saying to him. Keep my commandments and live. Because keeping the commandments, obeying the commandments is life. All right. Okay, moving on to verse 5. Very interesting. Very interesting verse here. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. So this word acquire. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. This word acquire means to purchase. To buy. To redeem to recover, and to own. And remember how I said that wisdom and understanding are often portrayed as feminine, as women? They're personified as a female lover? Well, guess what? Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. This reminds me of a marital, ancient marital contract. It reminds me of a bride price. If you're having to buy wisdom, you're having to buy understanding, how are you going to purchase wisdom and understanding? It's going to be a bride price. Because we're to have a love affair. We're to have a yada, an intimate relationship with wisdom and understanding. So it says acquire wisdom and understanding. Very powerful, I think, when you think of it in that context of the bride price. And... Uh, Okay, I won't go there. We'll keep going. (laughs) So basically, Solomon is saying that David told him to make a covenant, a marital contract, if you will, with wisdom and understanding. I I have written here, women uh, women were bought with a a bride price and therefore were acquired, quote-unquote, by a husband. What is the cost? What is the cost of, of the bride price? It's one's entire life, one's gifts, and one's talents. So acquire wisdom and acquire understanding. Then it says, do not forget. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. So uh, does, you, does your translation say forget? Do not forget? Okay. All right. So it's the same word there. Okay. Swerve. Do not swerve. Okay. Okay. Do not swerve from them. Okay. Interesting. Do not forget nor turn away or swerve from the words of my mouth. 
So words here is another Hebrew word. It's called, it's emir, and it means it's a purposeful command or decree. So do not forget the purposeful, meaningful decree of my mouth. All right. Uh, we got time to cover one more. Verse six. Do not forsake her. Ooh, did you hear that? Do not forsake her. Her. Who's her? Wisdom and understanding. That's her. That's who her is. And we acquired, we bought, we paid the bride price for her. So if, we're, if we think that a woman, a bride, wisdom and understanding is so precious that we have to buy her, then you don't forsake what you buy. Case in point, you got a lot of rich kids, and when they turn 16, you know, mama and papa warbucks will go out and buy a car for their kid on their 16th birthday, because after all, they get their license at 16, right? Nine times out of 10, within three months, that car is totaled. Why? Who cares? They didn't buy it. But if a kid has a paper route, you know, has a job, delivers pizzas or whatever, and he works hard and scrapes, you know, uh, pinches pennies and gets the money to buy that car. If he buys that car with his hard-earned money, with his blood, sweat, and tears, it doesn't matter if it's a clunker. doesn't matter if it's a fixer-upper. It doesn't have to be brand new. Oh, that kid loves that car. He's out there waxing it and, and washing it every day. He's making sure that all the maintenance on schedule, you know, the tires are rotated, the, the oil's changed, it's gassed up all the time. And it may be a piece of crap. It might be a rust bucket. But to him, he bought it. He purchased it. It's important to him. It's so important that he bought it. It's his first car. It wasn't given to him. So he has an investment in it. So that's the same way with, with wisdom and understanding. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Do not for, That's kind of interesting, too, because usually you think of the husband guarding the wife instead of the wife guarding the husband. But it says, do not forsake her. Do not abandon her, right? Uh, she will guard you. Now, there's been times where Pam has guarded me, maybe not physically, but there's been times where I've been so spiritually confused and out of whack because I've been so pressured by a situation that I can't discern or see clearly what's going on. And Pam, being the biblical helpmate, will come alongside me and say, look, I know you're confused and I know that things don't make sense to you, but this is the way I see it. And how many times in the scripture... Did God tell the husband to listen to the wife? Listen to your wife, Sarah. You know, there's a couple times where God told the man to listen to the woman. Listen to your wife. Because she's your helpmate. She's your better half. She will guard you. She, she has intuition that you don't have. She, thinks, she sees things from a different perspective and see things in a way that you don't see or can't see. So it's a very important. So that's kind of what wisdom is. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. She will guard you. Now, the word guard is that word that we've, we've uh, uh, already went over. It's shomer, shamar, which means to protect. It's also been translated as keep. And it says, the second part of this verse says, love her, and she will watch over you. Now, if I'm, if I'm ever counseling um, a young couple about to be married or a young married couple, 
I emphasize the husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I remind them of what Peter said, live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hid. In other words, you mistreat your wife, God's not going to listen to your prayers. And a lot of times, because men uh, don't understand the true nature of masculinity, they're not secure in their manhood, they have to kind of throw their weight around to feel big and bad, and I'm going to put my foot down and it's going to be this way. Yeah, Yeah, that always works, right? A wife will not submit to a husband that's like that. Now, he has the right and the authority as the head, whether right or wrong, whether his actions are right or wrong. He does have that right and authority to put his foot down. But you can put your foot down in love. You can put your foot down and be firm, but yet be loving about it and not be... Right? Love her. You don't love a woman by... You love a woman by, you know, by understanding the way she thinks, understanding, you know, what, 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 uh, what presses her buttons and what doesn't. You know, and once I loved my wife as Christ loved the church, then I noticed that Pam was more than willing to submit under me. She was more than willing to listen to what I had to say. She was more than willing to do what I asked her to do. Because it wasn't out of dictatorship, it wasn't out of commands, it wasn't out of harshness, it wasn't out of false masculinity, it was out of love. A true man is, is, is is a lover. He can be a warrior and a lover. Some of the samurais, they were the biggest bad boys on the planet, wielding swords and chopping off hands and heads and knowing all this, you know, martial arts. But yet they wrote some of the most tender, beautiful poetry that you ever want to read. So it says, love her, and she will watch over you. Love her, and the word love here is, is the Hebrew word ahava, and it's, it's designated as a, as a passionate lover that desires to please and serve. And the word she will watch over you, it's interesting, it's the same word used in connection with Jesus. He was Jesus the Nazarene, the Nazar. He was the guardian. He was, he was the branch. So it says you will watch over Netzar. Netzar is a zealous guardian or warrior. Love her and she will watch over you. So there's a give and take. There's a benefit to a marriage. You know, we always see the marriage as the husband protecting a wife. And maybe physically because we're built differently and we're built to protect physically. But a lot of times women are more spiritually in tune and, and, and spiritually inclined and intuitive to be able to help the man when man when the man is having some mental spiritual issues here and that's that's kind of the picture that we see here all right so i think this is a good stopping point we still have some time but we'll just go ahead and stop right here so we're going to begin next week with verse 7 and we'll go ahead and close our session with a word of prayer heavenly father It's so beautiful to understand uh, wisdom and understanding and to see them personified as as lovers and that we're to acquire them as a bride price that, you know, wisdom and understanding is worth whatever price we pay for that. Uh, Wisdom and understanding can get us places that brawn can't, that strength and, and, you know, that, that type of stuff can't, Lord. And we thank you for your word because it equips us physically, mentally, and spiritually to be able to live our lives 
not only to live and to survive and to get by, but to thrive, to live happily and joyfully. You said that I come to give you life and give it more abundantly, give it to the full. And Lord, that's what we want to gain from these Proverbs. We want to know how to please you, how to walk in your ways, how to to walk before you in a holy, pure uh, manner, to walk as Jesus walked. We want to imitate you just as a little child imitates the Father. We want to know, in order to do that, we've got to know you. We want to be intimate with your word. We want to know it inside and out in order that we can have a deeper personal relationship with you, in order that we can imitate you. Because, Lord, when we're your image bearers and we imitate you and we've paid the price for the price of wisdom and understanding with our entire lives and we go out there and be your image bearers and to show this world who God really is, who Jesus Christ really is, boy, how we can transform this village and we can transform this community. And, Lord, sadly, we're seeing... People lost. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for hope. They're searching for peace. They're, they're searching for a high. They're searching for, for life and excitement. And they're finding it in a needle or they're finding it in, in a crushed powder. And Lord, this world's gone crazy. They're stealing tractors and trailers and, and ATVs just to get that fix. But once it's gone, it leaves them lower than they were to start out with, Lord. And they're not finding it. The only true high, the only true joy, the only true peace, the only true meaning and fulfillment in life is found in you. It's found in your word. It's it's a sure doctrine. It's sturdy. It's firm. It can't be moved. It can't be budged. Your word is eternal. It stands forever. Even when this earth and this world passes away, your word will stand forever. You are God and you are holy and righteous and just. And Lord, help us to fall more madly, deeply, and passionately in love with you. That we would put you first in everything that we say and everything that we do. That we wouldn't let anything take your place. That, Lord, that we will sacrifice for you our time, our money, our efforts, our, our gifts and talents. We'll give them all to you. Lord, you said to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with our entire being. I don't think we truly understand what that is, Lord. May your Holy Spirit teach us that. What does it mean to sacrifice? What does it mean to truly love you? What does it mean to give our bodies? What does it mean to give our spirits? What does it mean to give our souls? What does it mean to give our strength? What does it mean to give our minds? Lord, if we're going to please you and we're going to love you and we're going to turn Plastrock upside down, we got to know. We want to know. We must know. And Lord, you want to give this to us more than we actually want to receive it. I pray you would just give us open hearts and open minds to receive that which you want to impart unto us. We've got to be willing and acceptive vessels. So Lord, help us to clear ourselves out of everything in this world, lay aside all the sins that so easily beset us, as Paul said, and run the race. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.